Despite calls to increase diversity within the occupational therapy field, new data indicates that the opposite may be occurring. In fact, occupational therapy ranked dead last 10 out of 10 in a recent paper examining diversity trends across various health care fields in the United States. In the study by JAMA, which I'll link to in our show notes, the authors found that OT had the largest percentage decrease of Black graduates entering the profession when compared to current workforce numbers. This new data just really highlights the continued work that needs to be done in order to achieve our vision of being an equitable profession. It also sets the stage for the importance of the article we are discussing today. The article that we are going to be diving into is a commentary that calls us to confront occupation's role in injustice. It also provides concrete strategies for moving towards anti-racist action. The authors really challenge us that we do have the power to transform our profession and our society by introducing the concept of anti-racism into our classrooms, policies, and daily practice. After I read a breakdown of this article, we are going to be joined by the authors of this paper, Kalia R. Johnson, PhD, MSOTRL, and Ryan LaValle, PhD, MOTOTRL. They are going to help us just unpack the information and discuss ways that you can create meaningful change. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on expert guests to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of anti-racist OT practice, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. And as of this recording, it is just $89 to join our CEU plan where you can log into the club, take a five-question test, and earn a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course for some of you, I wanted to state our learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to recognize the various ways in which anti-racism work can manifest in the occupational therapy profession. And our second objective is you will be able to identify the typical barriers and challenges to implementing these changes in your practice. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, which I'm going to read a breakdown of. And then I actually asked Ryan and Kalia to just do a total takeover of the discussion portion. So after I walk us through this article, I am just going to be turning the podcast over to them. So the article that we are discussing today is called From Racialized Think Pieces Towards an Anti-Racist Practice in Our Science, Education, and Practice. It comes to us from the Journal of Occupational Science, and it was published in the year 2020. So this commentary that we're looking at today is actually a follow-up article to another article that we discussed on the podcast on our episode, Occupation and Racism. And that article was Occupation, Injustice, and Anti-Black Racism in the United States of America. And I hope you tune into that episode, but in a nutshell, that article argued that as occupational therapy providers, we have a duty to truly understand the word occupation. 
This means acknowledging the role occupation has played in shaping societal policies and norms, many of which have been fundamentally unjust. We also need to admit that our professional knowledge base has itself been skewed. The foundations of OT have evolved from an exclusionary context that privileged white skin, as well as other false social hierarchies. So much of what we learn, teach, and practice as OTs comes from this lens of being able to accumulate social, economic, and political power. So that was the article that kind of set the stage. And then how did this particular commentary come about? In July 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, the Journal of Occupational Science published a special issue on anti-racism. This issue, which is now fully open access, began with a pledge to mobilize against racism from the Journal of Occupational Science editorial board. In this pledge, the board committed to publishing this special issue that featured commentaries from authors of previous published works that explored race and racism. Hence, the authors, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Lavallee, were invited to share a commentary of that article that I just mentioned, Occupation, Injustice, and Anti-Black Racism in the United States of America, which leads us to this commentary today and its purpose. So the purpose of this commentary was to call fellow scholars to join a critical shift to use occupational science constructs in a way that is transformative. As part of this commentary, the authors dive into kind of two main sections, first their positionality and second their charge to occupational scientists. So in the section on author positionality, the authors share their influences related to racism in occupation. So beginning with Kalia R. Johnson, she is a Black, cis, female, occupational scientist and OT. She experiences daily encounters with racism as well as public displays of race-based injustices, such as political disenfranchisement, discrimination, police brutality, and resource deprivation. She also manages additional responsibilities, as are often placed on Black academics, to redress inclusivity and racial equity in research, teaching, and clinical practice. These experiences directly influence her understanding of occupation in relation to social justice. And Ryan Lavallee comes to this topic from an overall position of privilege as a white cis male. His queer identity, however, has inspired him to pursue a deeper understanding of systemic oppression. This has required critical self-reflection to hold himself and other white scholars and practitioners accountable to doing the work necessary to deconstruct the systems of power and privilege from which they have long benefited. So how did their experience and interests converge for this paper? Both Dr. Johnson and Dr. Lavallee wrote dissertations for their PhDs related to structural racism and the racialized stratification of occupation. Yet, in their efforts to analyze the historical, social, and structural perspectives on racism in their work, they found a lack of literature that even acknowledges the impact of racism in OT and occupational science. Then fast forward to 2019, when the two created a learning module called Race and Occupation. Again, they did not identify any occupation-centric literature that supported the anti-racist deconstruction in action in research, education, and or practice. As they continue to build an occupational science course in a master's level OT program, they collected texts that pointed to a relationship between occupation and the construction of racism through systems of religion, economics, 
law, judicial decisions, education, social norms, and countless other components of everyday life. This material became fodder for discussion and analysis among occupational therapy students facilitated by the authors. Having discussions led by both a black voice and a white voice was crucial. It amplified the perspective of someone who is directly impacted by these injustices without tokenizing her. And likewise, it held a white person accountable to address and mitigate white supremacy in an educational setting. The student response to the content was overwhelmingly positive, which energized the writing of their article, Occupation, Injustice, and Anti-Black Racism in the United States of America. So that's their positionality and how the article came to be, and then is followed by their charge to occupational scientists. The authors share that the explicit mention of racism has been minimal in occupational science discourse. Thus, the authors stress the need for a more nuanced and critical inquiry into how racism has been both enacted and sustained in part due to occupation. They share this work may include, but is not limited to, the following. And they lay out four things here. First is questioning prominent racializations of occupation in literature. They share that race is a construct without genetic or biological origins. So scientists should make racialization a point of deliberation. Without doing this work of deliberation, occupational scientists may contribute to marginalization rather than dismantling it. Second, reconsidering the use of the phrase underrepresented minorities and other racist labeling. People of color make up the world's majority, and the authors recommend using language like excluded, minoritized, or racialized to accurately reflect reality. Third is name and frame racism. They share there is power in naming racism for calling it out when we see it, basically, and justice is in the framing. Scientists should name racism and frame it in relation to occupation so we can collectively process how systems of racism articulate to occupation. And fourth, exercise plurality of occupational perspectives. There is currently a lack of diversity among occupational scientists. Thus, the authors challenged their discipline to intentionally seek, support, and accentuate contributions of colleagues and stakeholders from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And in their conclusion, they share that social science is at its best when it is self-critical and self-correcting. In this vein, occupational scientists must recognize that the discipline's theories and methods have been subject to racism. When racism is accurately named and framed, occupational scientists can enact anti-racist decision-making and actions, and we can leverage occupation to foster transformative and justice-oriented change for all communities. There is so much to unpack and talk about from this paper, and I am just so thankful to welcome back both of the authors. As I mentioned before, they have been on this podcast talking about that original paper, and now they're joining us to talk about the commentary and talk about anti-racist OT practice. I'm going to read part of both of their bios and then turn the discussion over to them. And just a quick note, they both have fairly long bios, so I read half of it on our previous podcast, and I'm going to read the second half of their bios on this one, but you can always turn to our show notes to see their full bio and work. So beginning with Dr. Kalia R. Johnson, who was the lead author on this paper, Dr. Johnson is an activist scholar. She was named the 2022 Hortons McClitten Outstanding Faculty Award by the UNC Alumni Association, the 2021 MLK Unsung Hero by the UNC Office for Diversity and Inclusion, 
and the UNC Office of the Provost, as well as recognized by the Bernau University Alumni Hall of Fame. Additionally, she is a member of the inaugural cohort of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Equity Scholars for Action Grantees. Dr. Johnson sits on the boards of the American Occupational Therapy Foundation Scientific Advisory Council, the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, Autism in Adulthood, and the Coalition of the Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, or COTAD. Dr. Ryan Lavalley is an active member of the occupational science and occupational therapy community. He is currently the research chair for the Society for the Study of Occupation, USA, and a coordinating member of the International Social Transformation Through Occupation Network, and the chair of operations for the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, or COTAD. Personally, Dr. Lavalley is proudly queer, originally hails from West Virginia, and enjoys gardening and anything outdoors. And I will also mention that they are both the co-hosts of one of my favorite occupational therapy podcasts, which is the Dr. Thoughts podcast. And a final note on our previous podcast, loosely, Kalia interviewed Ryan. And on this podcast, Ryan is going to be interviewing Kalia. So without further ado, I will turn the conversation over to them. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another Dr. Thoughts takeover of the OT Potential podcast. I am here with Dr. Kalia Johnson and I'm Dr. Ryan Lavalley, and we are the Dr. Thoughts duo, but excited here today to talk with you all a little bit more about some papers that we've written. And I get to ask Dr. Johnson some questions about herself, and I get to ask the rapid fire questions as well, which I'm excited about. Um, But we're excited to be back because, um, you know, we talked about our first paper, The Occupation Injustice and Anti-Black Racism in the U.S. in in our previous episode. And it was largely focused on history and sort of how that history was mobilized forward. But now we're going to sit a little bit more in the action and praxis side of things and how we can think about taking some of those ideas forward. And we are going to ask the wonderful race scholar, um, Dr. Kalia Johnson. (laughs) That is an identity that is still very hard for me to accept, race scholar. Well, I think it's an identity that's been given to you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, very much so, very much so. Yeah, because what is is your expertise in again? Yeah, so my, my... actual expertise is in intellectual and developmental disabilities and health services specifically. I've, for the majority of my occupational therapy career, worked with adults with intellectual developmental disabilities, both in institutional settings, or I say settings that are institutional in quality, right, and, and community. And so that is also the the focus or the community that I center in the research that I do mm. as well. Gotcha. And so how did how did you get to OT? How did before you got into the research and everything as a practitioner, how'd you yeah. how'd you find the profession? My story is like many, many others that I sort of happened into OT after my father had had a stroke and thankfully was not a, you know, a dense stroke or anything, didn't have any sort of major physical limitations, but it affected his vision and memory. And so my first exposure to OT was through his rehabilitative experience. And there was something that was very 
poetic almost about OT. There was something about aesthetics of the science that was really appealing to me. I didn't I didn't know anything about it, hadn't seen anything like it before. And so as part of um, an elective that I did in high school, I just, you know, did a little bit more research on it and saw that there was an OT program that was about an hour from where I lived. And so I, I applied as a pre-OT student at Brunel University Women's College. Otherwise, I would have been going to school for clarinet performance. <laughs> oh, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> a, a complete departure from, from what I, I thought I was going to do. Um, got in and Brunel gave me the most scholarship money. So I was like, I guess I'm going to be an OT. <laughs> <laughs> Get your coin. <laughs> <laughs> so that that is really, <clears throat> excuse me, how I got into, into OT. Um, and as far as like intellectual developmental disability practice, kind of like before getting into that area, I worked in acute care, really liked the fast pace, you know, high intensity variety that I got in the hospital system. But when I switched to doing home health, um, it really got me into other areas where I was, you know, seeing autistic adults, other people that fall under the like DD umbrella. And I was like, oh, I am really enjoying this work. And then once I left Georgia and came to North Carolina, when I was pursuing a PhD, that's when I got into the institutional work. And that, mm. I think those experiences, though the latter experiences working in sort of literal institutions was what really sort of turned the work for me. It really, I always share with Ryan and I, our, our boss, Nancy Bagatelle, because she was my dissertation chair and advisor, that it changed something in my spirit as an OT. And I really saw myself for the first time as an activist practitioner, um, now I guess turned activist scholar. But that was that was sort of the turning point, I think, in my career where I was like, all right, now I really, really understand that advocacy is part of practice and not something we do in addition to practice. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, and then you sort of were brought into research via the questions that you were asking about that experience. So, like, what are the questions that your research asks and, and what does it look like? Yeah, so really thinking about how do how are policies taken up in ways that actually prohibit participation for people or how are our policies and procedures in some facilities tied to racist histories, right? So how does structural racism sort of emerge in the healthcare pipeline? How are our communities structured in a way that still exclude people from multiply marginalized identifying groups, particularly for me, Black people with IDD um, and their care communities? And also just how, how do structural racist practices practices, if I can get it out right, show up in our research enterprise. So I also do some, some work that is specifically about understanding racism and research methods and, and common methods that we use in occupational science, occupational therapy, but also related fields. Yeah, so that's sort of what we're talking about today is the methods, right? And both <laughs> in, in the research and the education and the practice when it comes to really moving from just knowing the history and and now acting on it. So that's really what the second paper was about, um, this 
this commentary. So why do you think it was important for us to to write this paper? Yeah, so I guess to help situate everybody who's listening to this episode, like the purpose of a commentary is to offer critique or to be in critical dialogue with a theoretical, a conceptual, or even operational ideas that are presented by authors in the original paper. And this one is a little bit different because we were providing commentary to our own paper, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> which I hadn't done that before. They said, we want but more. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. So it gave us an opportunity to really add more context, right? Really give depth, but also explain why we were choosing to talk about the topic, how we came to those ideas, like really understanding where those conversations were happening, why we were even having those conversations and being in dialogue with each other, but also with students and others around the topic, but also go back and and speak in depth about the issues that were raised in that occupation injustice and anti-Black racism paper. And so the Journal of Occupational Science, the idea behind this was to allow authors who had written about racism, and I'm, <laughs> I, I sort of hesitate to say that, right? And we could, t- Ryan, and we could talk about that in a minute, yeah. about whether or not this issue really spoke to racism, because I would argue our paper is the only one that talked about it. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> the idea was to lend more of a dialogue about addressing race and racism in occupational science literature. And so they put this virtual issue together for, and and these these weren't new paper. Well, the occupation paper we wrote was new, but these this was a, a compilation of papers that had already been written that was supposed to speak to the topic. And authors were supposed to give some commentary around their ideas at the time, how they have move those ideas forward or not, but also other scholars in the field to comment on sort of the the conceptualization and challenge for occupational scientists to really redress racism, specifically in occupational science knowledge base. Yeah, and, and we do hesitate a little bit because, I mean, even in the sort of commentary on the issue written by Dr. Frank Cronenberg, he sort of calls out that <laughs> a lot of these original, um, you know, it, it felt a little bit like, you know, they went through the Journal of Occupational Science and found anything that had to do with culture or race and said, look, that's something about racism. But, you know, I think what we're saying is that, yes, is related, but it was not a paper specifically written about racism and the structural oppression that happens because of racism. You know, and I think some of the commentaries that those authors then provided definitely did get there in in talking about racism and and how their particular paper may have been related to it. But it it was a little bit, um, we, we needed to, again, critique ourselves in that mm-hmm. process. And and we did in saying that you can't say that we've been writing about anti-racism for this right. many years because these articles right. are not anti-racist. <laughs> no, but, no. you know, it was a calling in that moment to really contextualize the the articles in some way. Yeah. And even um, Dr. Brenda Began, who is a Canadian occupational therapist and an academic, speaks to that well, in particular about the sort of language gatekeeping that has happened in our journals. The fact that she couldn't even 
publish a paper where the word racism was even included and her multiple attempts um, at trying to do so and, and essentially having her paper rewritten at the copy edit stage because the journal, and I'm saying the journal, but I'm really talking about multiple occupational therapy and occupational science journals because it's been a practice of all of them, that it is just a subject that they didn't want to broach. It's like, we're not going to talk about that here. That's not, that's not it. And to, I think your point, they, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like a walking contradiction, right? It's like, we're going to do this anti-racism issue because we've been talking about it, but she literally in a paper talks about how there was this gatekeeping to, to not include that particular language in in an entire scientific discipline knowledge base, which is really, really mind-blowing for me. Right. Well, and it goes back again to sort of what we were talking about in the previous episode, that this this history and this even this present is being hidden from us. It's purposefully excluded when it comes to some of the content that we're reading or the evidence that we're basing our practice on that is gatekeeped. And there's people who are uncomfortable with this conversation and don't know exactly how to step forward in it in a more direct and honest way. So I think that's that's really what we want to talk about today is thinking about what are the sorts of concrete strategies that we can use to implement some of what we dis- we've been talking about over the past two episodes in our classes, in our work, in our practice, you know, in, in these different things. Yeah. So for, for those who have read or will read the paper, and it is available open access, on page 407, we really offer four, I'm going to say, propositions, right, um, strategies that folks may employ, particularly around scholarship. And I can talk about Two, sort of how these ideas also show up in the way that I teach, but also in the way that I consult as an occupational therapy practitioner. And one of those is that you make prominent racializations of occupation in the literature point of deliberation. That is a quote directly from the paper. And so you you have to be intentional and deliberate in talking about it, right? We can't be afraid to address it and think that in some way we will still be anti-racist and how we show up in the classroom, right? Understanding the racialization of occupation, particularly in the context of United States, how occupation was used to literally control Black people, where what they could do and could not do as far as participating in community, where they could go or couldn't go and so forth. Same thing with, with healthcare, like how might be thinking, how does this apply to being a practitioner? It's how hospital systems even exist in particular communities. Why is it in some, you know, older Black neighborhoods, you don't see hospitals, right? Or even Jewish communities, you might not see hospitals. Really understanding people's access, right? And how racialization, right? Racialized communities were were excluded from, from their health care. And then how do we talk about it in terms of research, Right. You have to have to be really intentional with language. Right. And making sure that we are almost I'm going to say like the Journal of Occupational Science making claims to to addressing an issue when you when you haven't. Right. So you really have to to be intentional with that naming and framing. And we're claiming that making racialization. Right. Making that that very explicit connection to occupation being necessary. Speaking of naming. Right. 
we, we call out the use of underrepresented. And I think that in, in anti-racism, I think work, you hear it a lot in DEI or DEIJ or JEDI work, the just explicit, probably overuse of the word underrepresented. And underrepresented implies that, you know, there's there's not enough of a particular group membership. So Black people are underrepresented, are underrepresented. Latinx, Latin A people are underrepresented in a particular group. And while sort of statistically that makes sense to say, the reality of it is in the context of the world, most of us are people of color. <laughs> so to, to use the word minority really erases the fact that the majority of the world's people come from that particular social positioning. We've talked about naming and framing. That is a an explicit point we make in the paper too, that you have to call a thing a thing. And because when you don't, we use cognitive shortcuts to fill in the gaps, right? Yeah. And going back to the fact that we have all so people of color, too, been socialized in racist systems. So that includes education. That includes how we engage healthcare. It includes how you go to the grocery store and the post office, right? We use those, those schemas to help us figure out what it is that we're supposed to do, right? So not just naming, but making sure that we are, we are framing and framing in these socio-historical Context. Yeah, and I think uh, you know you'll hear us say minoritized instead of minority, or instead of underrepresented, we'll say historically excluded because it's not that they're just not represented; they've actually been pushed out of those particular professions or, or areas. So that language can be really important for naming the reality of what you're actually talking about. I always remember, we have a colleague who always talks about the global majority, and I've always loved when white people assume that's them. <laughs> and it was, she's not talking about white people. The global majority is not white people. No. And so it's just interesting to, to see the assumptions that in the right. schemas that we walk around with, that if you're talking about majority, clearly you're talking about white people. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's 100% not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, and although, you know, this is sort of, this has come after we have written this paper in terms of the terminology that I prefer to use now is like multiply marginalized. You know, how do we talk about people that have intersectional marginalized identities, right? So add that one to your toolbox. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> So what are some ways that you think either that language aspect or some other strategies that practitioners can really use as they're out in the work in practice? Yeah. So think about documentation, right? Speaking of language, you know, how are you describing the clients that that you work with? And what are the implicit messages that it sends to others who read your notes, but also to insurance companies, right? Are you contextualizing their situations or not? You know, we talked about it in the previous episode about making racism really the driver of people's situations and not attributing what their circumstances are to their race, right? And so being intentional with that language and doing audits, not just of your own notes, of each other's notes when you when you write that up. Also doing audits of the policies and procedures in your places of work. You know, how is it that they 
tell you to to treat difference or how is difference considered and and how patients are are talked about and described in, in policies and procedures. The other thing is, you know, thinking about continuing education because a huge part of us doing this work, right, was that students asked about it. Practitioners can ask too, you know, mm-hmm. ask for, well, look, we're already doing it, right? OT yeah. potential, continuing <laughs> education, right? <laughs> ask for this education. But when you ask for it, right, be sure that you're not putting the burden on people of color, color to do that education for you, mm-hmm. right? But making it a valued point of not just discussion, but integration as an integral part of practice for you. Practitioners, you can demand that from a state level, but also um, at a national level. Yeah. Well, and one example, I think, just sort of speaking to the documentation issue and Marilyn Grenier in Canada and and their colleagues have written a little bit about this, but you know, in, in the way that we, particularly when it comes to child welfare in the indigenous population, I think it's a really important thing to talk about documentation, and this is what they really talk about. And it's this idea that the way that you write about how a family is showing up to therapy can actually influence the legal right of the government to take away that child. Um, and so if, if you're saying the family is non-compliant or the family just didn't show up to therapy or no attendance or something, like that, as opposed to lack of access to transportation prevented family from getting to or you know the the other contextual reasons that are there that are preventing a family from arriving at therapy and writing that down instead of just blaming it on the family particularly when it comes to that relationship to racism you know that that language and sort of pitting families as ill-equipped to care for children has been used to remove children from indigenous families throughout North America. And so that's just a particularly, I think, severe example, but your documentation can be really important in how you actually talk about these things in some ways. Yeah. I mean, that explicitly made me remember about a situation in coming Georgia when I was doing home health and a very sort of impoverished area that's it's always adjacent to an affluent area too, which drives me crazy. But, or um, I sh- that's actually a, 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 I shouldn't say that phrasing either. But really burns me up. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was an area that people did not have access to running water. Shelter was even a, a bit questionable. So the housing insecurity was a very very big problem, and just people having access to the city transportation because bus system did not come out that far. So you know we're talking about outskirts of the city. Some people were using that documentation to displace people. Mm. You know, but this is yeah. all was also a community where the government housing wait list was four years at the time. Who knows what it is now. But I worked with a social worker to say, no, we're going to take this documentation to the city. Um, Well, she ended up taking it to the city, but use it in a way to get the people the resources that they needed because the claim was they didn't know they were there. Mm. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that's that's not true. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Well, and the history we'll we'll know is that, you know, because we've done our research as good <laughs> practitioners and and allies and whatever that, 
you know, oftentimes those geographical locations in cities have been purposefully concentrated as people of color, you know, to impoverish and to limit resources. So again, that history is important for us to be able to justify and describe why this injustice is happening and be able to take action for it to be resolved more appropriately, you know, which is... So difficult. What about in the classroom, Dr. Johnson? What Ooh, do you think gosh. we can do? So talking to the educators on on the call, want to do course audits. You know, what are you teaching? You know, who are the authors that you are drawing on? Who are the theorists, right? What are the frameworks that you are teaching your students? You know, are they all Western centric? Are you drawing on scholars from the global South? Are you drawing on on OT evidence from journals outside of the United States? So doing those intentional audits and making those adjustments so that students are getting a more global perspective about occupation, right? We have, we use knowledges, so plural, right? That the, the, the AJOT way, um, and I'm just, I'm using AJOT as an example, right? Cause the American journal, right? Our, our, our centering around Western norms it, is not it. That is not how our students will function in the global society that we expect them to go, to go out into, right? So, so doing that. The other thing is doing equity audits with your research partners. Right. How are you engaging people in the scholarship? You know, where is the power sharing? Whose voices are you centering? Who's setting the agendas? Because that ultimately shapes the evidence that we in turn bring into the classroom. If I don't talk about any other strategies, those two are the most important. The other thing is going back to auditing courses is sort of checking in with students. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit in our previous episode, but where are the gaps in their understanding from a sociohistorical and cultural standpoint, right? Are they making the connections about racism, racist structures, and their connections to the concepts and even practice settings that you're talking about in class, how is that translating from the from the classroom then to field work? So really thinking through those course objectives, what are you teaching and how are you teaching, but also follow up to students. Let them tell you where it's landing and where it's not. Yeah, and I think that there's also different questions to different students, right? Like you, if you go to your white students, they're probably going to give you a different answer than this, the, the black students or the students of color. So making sure to have those intentional conversations and really hearing the experience of the difference in those students is, is also really important. But also not saying, you know, well, we don't have any black faculty, so you just teach since you're a black student. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, that's that's not their job. Their job there is there to be a student first. And yes, they bring a life experience that could provide, you know, some. But unless you're paying them, you probably shouldn't be <laughs> asking them to to contribute that sort of knowledge to the space unless they really want to and are interested in it. So I, I think that that's always an interesting tension that, that educators sometimes 
find is like, oh, well, I want to take advantage of this person's lived experience. Well, that's exactly what you're doing. You're taking advantage of it. <laughs> it's exploitation. But yeah. also recognize when you don't have the capacity to participate in the conversation, but not use it as a scapegoat not to do it, right? right. But being being honest with students to, to let them know where you need additional work and education and that you are also learning along with them. And then when mistakes are made, because they will inevitably happen to have that that moment of vulnerability as a teaching moment for your students as well. Yeah. Well, and I think this goes for managers and people who are maybe managing health professionals out in practice. Like if you're bringing together a group of your healthcare practitioners into a space to do this sort of training or have these sorts of conversations, you need to be prepared. And you also just can't go to your local like black OT and be like, hey, do a racism DEI workshop. (laughs) Like that's not the way to do it. (laughs) But it happens all the time. Right. Right. (laughs) And so I, I think that's important, not just for educators of students, but managers and people who are interested in improving the quality of care that's happening in your institutions through education um, and continuing education. So it's not just the, the faculty that need to be hearing this, it's also you practitioners out there who are supervising other healthcare professionals and want them to be educated in some ways. So Dr. Johnson, you mentioned a term that I'd, I'd like you to unpack just a little bit more. You said the global south. Can you tell the listeners what that means exactly, just briefly? Yeah, so we when we talk about the the global south, we mean those nations that are well, one quite literally in the southern hemisphere of the United States, but those that are that are non non western. So you're thinking about South America, you're thinking about countries of Africa, you're thinking about countries of Asia, those that aren't sort of taking up in western discourse. So when we say global south, that's that is what we mean in I think the most basic and general explanation. Yeah, and I think that there that's just a term that you might hear if you start reading a bit more in this work of sort of decolonization and, and anti-racism and sort of thinking of global power structures. The global north and the global south is an idea that's really talked about quite a bit, but it's not uh, like it's not like the equator is the thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, no, no, no. You know? I definitely don't want to imply that. Yeah, no, no, I don't think you did. There's there's also exceptions to the rule. Like some people consider, for example, the Middle East. East and Palestine as the global south, you know, when it's very much in the global north. So just to give the listeners a little bit of context for that terminology, I think it's it's helpful um, to move forward. And definitely so, nuanced, y'all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what do you think is going well in this work, this anti-racist praxis within occupational therapy practice? Oh, gosh, what's, what's going well? I think what's going well is that we're in dialogue about it. I think for a long time and you know I've, I've been an OT now 17 years and only up until I think the the murder of George Floyd are we starting to see more consistent and I think intentional dialogue around anti-racist approaches and what it means for occupational therapy practice, but also occupational therapy education and occupational therapy research. Same thing in occupational science research, right? Because we're, we're occupational scientists. That means that, you know, sort of beyond the listening sessions, people are actually conducting workshops 
talks and panels that occupational therapy practitioners have been included, right? We're sort of doing this in our professional circles, but also doing it interprofessionally. So understanding that while it is a sort of individual, as in like disciplinary duty, it's like to really tackle the system comprehensively. It requires that we do this work in concert with other people. So Mm. seeing that happen as well, seeing that white practitioners are taking up the mantle to do this work, right? You know, we've hinted at a lot that so much of the work seems to fall in the laps of people of color, but that we have leaders, white leaders in the field and in the discipline of occupational science that are that are taking it up. And not to say that y'all still aren't being asked a lot. How many talks have you done? And oh <laughs> yeah. So while I appreciate that people are stepping up to the plate <laughs> to date, y'all, I have done 23 invited talks or panels on this subject alone. Now, remember the beginning of the episode, I said, I am an intellectual and developmental disability researcher. I'm a health services researcher. But 23 talks after the murder of George Floyd, 23, just on the topic of anti-racism. And that if that doesn't say to you that, you know, we're, we're putting undue burden on people, I don't, I don't know what is. So... We still have some work to do in that, but I think the work that white practitioners or scholars are, are doing is, is good. So, But also, like, 23, you did that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it gives me pause, because I'm like, I, I have very vivid memories of, you know, literally jumping from one Zoom link to another. Y'all, sometimes we're talking four and five talks in a week, a couple of them being on the same day. I guess, thankfully, you know, we're also in the middle of a pandemic. So most of these were done virtually, but that's a lot of talking. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of educating, most of which was free. Mm-hmm. I, I will say. So that's the that's the other thing about when you're when you're asking people to help you in this work or to, you know, educate you in part of this work, at, at least pay them. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the least you could do. Yeah. Something else that is going well because people are talking about it more, funders are getting excited to actually pay people for the work. Speaking mm-hmm. of paying for the work, right? Yeah. I have a project right now that is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that is about structural racism in the healthcare pipeline, particularly for minoritized folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Up until this project, Robert Wood Johnson hadn't funded anything like that specifically for the disability community. And you would think it is a healthcare foundation that is something that they would be interested in. But when you look at their portfolio of funding, disability is less than 2%, if I remember the number correctly. I have to go back and look at that. But I know it's definitely not in the double digits. And so, you know, our colleges and universities, as well as occupational therapy programs are adding DEI positions, so dedicated folks to ensuring that some of these efforts are integrated into the education that we're providing for our students. We're, you know, seeing DEI statements. I I have different, you know, a different opinion about whether or not those are needed (laughs) because it's about what people do for me versus what they stay, I may say, but... You know, regardless of the fact we're seeing DEI statements, 
But the thing is, while a lot of this is still well-meaning, a lot of it is it, it's still performative. Right. We're seeing very little dollars sometimes put towards these efforts. So it's like, okay, we have this new position now that is going to make sure we have anti-racist occupational therapy curriculum, but we're only going to give it 1% of the budget. Mm. What are programs supposed to do with that? Right. Right. Or when your professional organization has listening sessions, they want to do toolkits and things like that, but it takes a couple of years for them to actually include it explicitly in a strategic plan. Right. So are we are we And whether really... that strategic plan actually gets implemented or not is a different question. <laughs> right. Right. You know, we put it on paper, but then how far do we do we take it? Yeah, so really discerning the talk from the walk, if mm-hmm. if you will. So while there is plenty that we're doing in occupational science and occupational therapy, there's still a lot left to do. Yeah, so what maybe isn't going so hot that we can can improve on? <laughs> yeah, so going back to these 23 talks, you'd be surprised how defensive practitioners can get. And I'm speaking mm. specifically about white occupational therapy practitioners. You mean my people? <laughs> yes, your people. Your people. So We're listen. defensive? What? <laughs> if you are accomplices in this work and you are on a talk with me on Zoom, if people are getting rowdy, I will send you a message in the chat to gather your people. Please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know... Dr. LaVallee already touched on this in the previous episode, but it's it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Just as much as it's hard for you to hear, it's hard for me to talk about. You know, you're learning about it. I'm living it, you know, so... Yeah, I can I can I maybe push that a little bit and say that it's much harder for you to talk about than for us to hear about. Yeah. You know, because you are living it and we're just getting to hear about it. Right. So just to right. name that, I think, is important. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot. In fact, in these talks, a lot of the examples that I give, they aren't hearsay. They're my experiences. So when I talk about, you know, racial slurs that are used in therapy sessions, that was me being, you know, systematically excluded from promotions. That's me being the hat, you know, it being 2016 is it's still being the first at something like that. That that is me, you know, but my story is not unlike a lot of other practitioners. And I think that. White practitioners, when they ask me to talk about that, they don't always realize that one, you, it's, it's sort of re-traumatizing, right? To have to talk about that. And so while I have done that for the benefit of others learning, that's, that's at the expense. That is what you're asking me to do. Yeah, and just to to name, you know, an accomplishment, but also to make your point, again, in 2016, Dr. Clea Johnson was the first PhD in occupational science in the U.S. who was black. <laughs> so I think that, that to recognize that, you know, this, in 2016, this is still an issue of access and ability because we have fantastic practitioners and uh, researchers out there who uh, probably didn't pursue those degrees because they felt this exclusion and they felt this racism as they were moving through. But at the same time, I think when we think about the profession as a whole, we are mostly white. (laughs) 
And that defensiveness often comes from our intention to just give people the benefit of the doubt. They can't be racist. They're not. And I think one of the things that you have to learn as a white person is that it's not a personal attack. It's, it's again, it's in the water, right? If you recognize that we're all swimming in the same water, then you, you probably will assume first that it's related to racism, <laughs> you know? And, and if you're feeling the urge to, to challenge somebody in a talk or ask that question that sort of negates their experience, you know, and you're a white person doing that to a person of color in that talk who is the speaker, maybe step back, pause, and, and don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because maybe you do have some nuanced points to make, but it, that's not really the point. And, and I think the bigger issue really is recognizing the water that we're all swimming in. And that's, that's not helpful as an ally in that space to try and point out particularly nuanced things that challenge the reality of the, the presentation that that person is giving. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just think it's, it's, that's also the defensiveness is that we want to like make it clear and like, you know, make sure that the benefit of the doubt is given. But at the same time, that's not helpful to the broad work that needs to be done in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you think we could maybe improve on as a profession? Um, I think we have to talk about tokenization. Mm. Right. And that it happens both in employment. So how the the processes for recruiting and hiring in various systems for occupational therapy practitioners, but also systems of hiring for black faculty. And we, we could throw in students as well. Right. There's there's often a recruitment process to because there's obviously a movement to improve diversity in the profession. But making sure that we're not doing this just to say, like, look at these black faces, <laughs> you know, that we're giving real intention to bringing people into a culture that is anti-racist. Right. How are we supporting? How are we lifting? How are we including? How are we centering? Asking all of those questions, because it's not about like who is there right it's about who's missing and that you know goes beyond race but that is definitely a I think a a point to enter into the conversation on right and once they're there what are we asking our people of color to do mm-hmm. you know are we only asking them to participate in discussions on race you know, are we automatically assigning them all of the students of color? Are we asking them to be on the DEI committee? I can't tell you how many times I've been asked to be on somebody's committee related to diversity and everybody on the committee is a person of color. And I'm like, nope, not doing this. Because it's like, we're not the ones who are in positions oftentimes to really make changes, systemic changes that need to happen. And, you know, beyond hiring, how are you treating your colleagues, right? Are are you asking your, always asking your Black colleague to do the in-service about anti-racism or pointing them out to ask questions about something that you literally could go do a quick Google on? Mm -hmm. You know, we we have a, a friend and colleague who's at our hospital system that's constantly being asked to do anti-racism workshops for coworkers. And it's yeah. like, why? 
Yeah. We know why, but <laughs> it's like the black person in the room, tell us how to be better. Please right. don't do that. Don't be that yeah. person. <laughs> well, I think also that tokenization can look like, you know, when you bring that person into the room, if the room is not prepared. You know, we, we've talked about this on our podcast in that, like, if you're a good ally in the classroom or in the training or whatever, you're not going to bring a speaker of color to a hostile audience, you know, who isn't prepared to really hear the the hard truth or the real strategies. You know, you need to do the work and tend your garden before you bring that plant to grow there um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So Such a good metaphor. <laughs> So what are, are any other ways that you can think of that our profession sort of needs to change in regard to this, this topic? Oh, gosh. That's, that's such a big question because I think, you know, the, the greatest hurdle we face is a, is a systems one, right? We really need to dismantle our existing systems of governance. So thinking about how our representative bodies are really taken care of by a professional organization, you know, how how are people able to sort of think about and participate and really craft the sort of occupational therapy practice that meets the needs of today's society, right? And mm. a lot of that gatekeeping happens at the national organization level. So thinking about mm. AOTA, ACODE, NBCOT, and I named those big three because it's like, who controls sort of the membership and the scope of the practice? Yeah. Who's in charge of, you know, what it is that we teach in the classroom? And then who controls what it is that we are saying to employers that we do? Not so much that, you know, I provide you with the registration, but they actually lobby about what the scope of practice is to employers. So, mm-hmm. and we build those from a anti-racist, but also an anti-oppression and equity lens. That way, everybody wins. Everybody wins. I already sort of talked about this, but want to go back to revisiting our educational standards and really give critical consideration to how we prepare occupational therapy students, right? I can't tell you how many stories we receive from students about clinical situations where they are having to encounter whether it's racism, xenophobia, sexism, all the isms, right? But we're collectively as educators are not doing a great enough job of addressing this in the classroom. So therefore, students are feeling ill-prepared. Education, fieldwork educators too, um, or fieldwork education coordinators always forget sort of the order of those words, also require some additional training and things. And you know, we don't really have a standardized way of addressing that either. So even if we have these educators that are are, are willing and able to assist, they're also feeling a bit ill-equipped. And y'all just stop asking practitioners and students of color to do the work, right? The way that the profession moves forward is that we have to do a concerted effort, particularly from the, I'll say, professional majority, right? So white occupational therapy practitioners to be intentional about engaging this work. You cannot put your head in the sand on this, right? We've said it multiple times already. It is in the water we swim in. Yeah. But Kalia, we just told white people to step back. (laughs) In what way? And uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I that's what I that's what I I think is interesting here because that's what I've said and but it's like we do need to step up, but we need to know how, and that's that's the nuance here. It's like we we do not want white people stepping up when they don't know what they're doing, and they're they're creating more harm than good, or they're creating more disruption than actual transformation in our society. I mean, there's good good trouble, right? <laughs> good disruption, but when it comes to how to step forward as a white person and be a, a, a change agent for this work, it takes deep reflection and research and education on how to do that well and deep relationship with the people that you're trying to walk alongside. So And strategic it's, it's, mobilizing, if I can add yes. that as well. Yeah. So it's not that it's sort of just like sit back and let people of color do all this work. It's also step up into the work intentionally and mm-hmm. relationally. Oh, thank but you for qualifying because I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why say what? Well, there's some, you know, there's some white people out there just doing some weird stuff. So yeah, and unfortunately, they bring some people of color along with them too. So yeah, so this this is for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what do you think? Some of the, in doing this work, we've talked about in the in the classroom, in practice, and research. Like, what are the barriers? What are the things that are preventing people from from really doing it? You know, well. Oh gosh, fear. People are afraid mm. of getting it wrong. Y'all, we've had mm. hundreds of years of doing it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. <laughs> you will. <laughs> you will. You will. And in the, you know, vastly diverse and global society we live in, there is not a one size fits all, right? So you have to learn these strategies. You have to learn how to adapt your strategies, but do it in practice, right? Practice makes praxis. That is the, if I didn't remember any other sort of cliche a professor said to me in OT school, that's the one I'm going to remember. Practice makes Mm. praxis, right? So you got to practice that thing. The other thing, we have this over-reliance on unconscious bias trainings. Mm. Mm. Y'all, it don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And for the people who like the facts and the data, the data also show it don't work. (laughs) Um, We're not dealing with, you know, the sort of oh, I'm, I don't know that I'm not being racist or I'm not sure what my thoughts and feelings are. It's like, no, we, we have to really contend with the explicit sort of consequences of bias. So we're not, we're not dealing with the unconscious. We need, to, we need to deal with what's coming up through the conscious, right? <laughs> what, is, what is emerging? What is realized in these situations? So I don't know what you can yeah, call that training bias now, training. but- it, I, I call it trying to teach fish to drink different water. <laughs> you are just so full of great metaphors. Look at that. <laughs> like, you can't take the fish out of the lake. So, like, why are you trying to, like, teach it to, it can't, it has no other water to drink. So, what are you trying to do here? Give it a bottle? Like, <laughs> I don't hilarious. know. <laughs> but the, the other, I think, real barrier that we probably don't give enough attention to, and we already touched on it in my situation, but the black tax, right? Mm. That there is a 
an undue labor that is automatically placed on Black people and other people of color to not just address the issues of racism, but the mentoring that has to happen in that process, the giving of support to others through that process. When you're a person of color and you're the only one in that space, the additional just emotional physical, intellectual labor that has to happen because you become the de facto expert in all things Black or all things gay or all things disability, just whatever the minoritized identity is. And while people may not... White people specifically may not know that they they do that to their their friends and their colleagues. It happens. It happens. And so, one, if you're in academia, it is labor that we don't get credit for. Let's be clear yeah. about that. I'm not going to get promotion and tenure over it, but it is it is very real. It is very taxing. And the data also show that it is actually cuts years off your life. So please keep that in mind when when you are like, we're going to recruit, we are going to retain, and we're also going to include in, in various ways that we're not putting this extra burden on folks. And I'm going to I'm going to flip the coin of the black tax and say there's also a white rebate barrier. Ooh, a white rebate. Okay. <laughs> yeah, coin that term, <laughs> trademark coin. <laughs> in the sense that, you know, in these situations where white people are being asked to or need to give up power, their discomfort gives them sort of a rebate or an excuse not to do so. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, they're like, oh, but I can't do that. That's like not how it's been done. Or that's the status quo. Or like, well, how can we, that's not where the budget sits. Like, you know, like that doesn't work for our systems. Well, the systems are racist. That's what we've been talking about. Right. <laughs> but it's sort of this benefit of the doubt that's given to white people because it sits in the status quo. And then they're able to not give up power because they sort of use this idea that, well, it's too disruptive mm-hmm. or uncomfortable to give up that power. You know, I work, uh, I talk about this a lot with our, our community partners who are predominantly white organizations. And I'm saying, like, get people in the community engaged. And they're like, well, we can't hire them. Like, that, that's, we can't, they can't be employees here. I'm like, why not? <laughs> You know, like, why can't you pay them for their time in consulting with you about how to work in their own community? <laughs> like, so I don't know. I think there's this other side where we use that status quo as a mm-hmm. as a, a leverage to keep things the way they are and not be uncomfortable with giving up that power. Yeah. All right. So when y'all hear so, this and write about it in your next paper, make sure you um, you cite <laughs> this episode. White rebate. <laughs> God, I don't want to pull a white fragility, so we're just going to leave that one there. But (laughs) so you know, we talked about the berries, but what are you excited for? What's what's on the horizon? What are you excited for in occupational therapy in regards to this topic? You know, I think I've already patted folks on the back a little bit for jumping in and and doing the work thoughtfully, but y'all, we don't give enough credit to students. Oh my goodness, the. The organizing, the uh, sort of thoughtful strategizing that I see our students doing around issues of justice and and anti-racism gives me a lot of hope. Also, just, you know, my experiences in the classroom with our master students, the types of questions that they ask, the 
examples that they bring back from field work to unpack with their classmates, like the things that they are paying attention to helps mm. me know that one, what we're, what we're teaching <laughs> is getting through to them. Like they're actually listening. They're not just on Instagram and Facebook in class. <laughs> they're actually yeah. listening and, and applying the knowledge and, and taking it and making our program better, making their field work sites better. But also I think communicating it in a, in a way like on social media and other places, almost like they're educating each other that I think will really transform the profession in ways that I don't think we are necessarily going to see coming. Mm. And I'm really, really excited about that. Same thing for our, our doctoral students. And when I say doctoral, I'm speaking specifically about PhD because UNC does not have an OTD program, but hopefully this is happening in OTD and post-professional OTD programs as well, that our, our PhD students are thinking about the relationship of racism and other forms of oppression and how we think about occupation and what that means whether it's just about occupation in and of itself or how it's then applied in occupational therapy practice. And I feel like with our the cohort that we engage right now at UNC, we're not even, we don't have to present that to them. They came into the program already thinking about these things. And yeah. so that in and of itself, I'm just like, whoo, the, the tide is turning. Yeah. God help us. <laughs> I think uh, this new generation of students, you know, not even in age, but just in people coming in. I, as RuPaul would say, I think the library is open and they got their reading glasses on because mm-hmm. they are just like reading the profession to filth, reading, like, you know, just saying what's real right. and just speaking the truth to us in a lot of really powerful ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I totally agree with that. Well, so as we wrap up, I have some rapid fire questions. Oh, the rapid fire. You're going to have to be brief because we're short on time, I think. Okay. (laughs) All right. So finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is evolving. Ooh, evolving. So y'all get ready. (laughs) Put just just the (laughs) lettos on and some cute camo joggers. If you also don't know, Dr. Johnson is also a fashion icon, so icon. Be, be, be ready for that. Oh, icon for sure. Ooh, Let's be real. like Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is one moment in therapy you will never forget? You know, when I thought about this question, and I cannot be brief, but I will be brief, it was the, the first time I experienced loss. So first time a, a patient that I had been seeing for a very long time passed away. Yeah. That was... Um, one, I wasn't really prepared for it, even as a person who sort of grew up in a faith, particular faith tradition, was still very hard to deal with because I wasn't sure if I was supposed to grieve as an OT. Like, and, mm. and because I wasn't family, am I okay to be upset about this? It was, right. yeah. yeah, that was very hard to deal with. I still think about that patient from Ooh, time to time. That's a whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> grieving as the professional. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. Mm-hmm. For sure. What is something you've read recently that has inspired you as an, as an OT? Yeah. So there two things. Very recently, I, I got a beautiful email from a student that like I was tearing up as I read it, who is from a different country and reflected on meeting me at a conference and how seeing someone who is Black And given a platform, like a very public (laughs) platform, and was speaking to race 
disability and discourse unapologetically made her feel like she could step into what she wanted to as an OT. Mm. And that I was like, you just, you just really never know sometimes what your, your presence alone can do for people. Absolutely. And that was, that, that sticks with me all the time. Even when the days yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell people like, or, you know, responding to emails like, no, I don't want to talk to you about this. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about, I think about her. I think yeah. about her. Yeah. So as we're closing, what's the big takeaway from this episode and this article that we've written for the listeners? Yeah, I think more than anything, you know, we, one, we recognize that y'all, this, this is hard work. It's hard, right? But it's also heart and not head work, right? We can't over-intellectualize this. So putting my occupational scientist hat on that I think, you know, people want to talk about it from this super cerebral sort of point of view, but we're talking about systems and ways of being that affect people in very real ways. So we need to also examine them and talk about them in very real ways. So examine how it is that you want to do that and decide what sort of OT or occupational scientist you want to be. I love that. And it's so important. Well, thank you for chatting with me as always, Dr. Johnson. It's always a pleasure and a joy to learn and grow alongside you. Um, and you can catch more of us if you want to on the Dr. Thoughts episode. And we haven't spelled that yet. That is T-H-O-T-S. And you can do your own research on why we chose that, but it is very purposeful. <laughs> so thank you again, Dr. Johnson. And I think that's it for us. All right. Wow, you all, I just again want to extend my gratitude to Kalia and Ryan for being here today for the work that they're doing and just their willingness to share with us. I have learned so much from these past two episodes with them. I know that there is a lot of action for us to take. And I definitely want to direct you to the show notes where you can read both of their articles and also the JAMA article that I mentioned at the beginning that shares that data that I was really taken aback by that we may not be making the progress that we want to be making when it comes to increasing our diversity. In the show notes, I'll also share some supplementary readings for you as well. And if you are a member of the OT Potential Club, I definitely encourage you to head into there to discuss the article and discuss this podcast today. I know there's a lot to unpack. The club is also where you will go to take a five-question test and earn a certificate for your time today. And with that, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk with you next time.